0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the federal government is prepared to spend tens of millions to pay farmers to use less water from the Colorado River, but not everyone is on board with that plan. I'll talk with busy stage and screen actors Mimi Kennedy and Gordon Clapp, the stars of a new play debuting in Tucson called Prue Pain. Meet the women who founded the Borderlands Brewing Company. And Stories That Soar brings us a cautionary tale written by a second grader. It's called Food Queen. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The second largest reservoir on the Colorado River is Lake Powell, where water levels are now at a record low. To keep the supply from declining further, federal officials are ready to spend tens of millions to incentivize farmers and other water users on the river's upper basin to make conservation efforts. But not everyone agrees that paying farmers not to farm is the way forward. The story was produced by Chris Clements of KSJD in Cortez, Colorado.
1: Greg Vlaming is a farmer who lives in Lewis, in southwest Colorado. We're standing on his snowy farm field looking out across his land.
2: This is the orchard area, I've got a couple of hundred trees in there. They're just in their fifth
1: year. At our feet is Vlaming's metal diversion box, through which water flows to irrigate his fields.
2: There's been a lot of conservation done in this area over the years to deliver and use the water as efficiently as possible.
1: Those ongoing conservation efforts are getting a significant expansion this year in the form of a rebooted System Conservation Pilot Program, or SCPP. Vlaming is trying to convince other farmers in the region that the program is a good idea.
2: And I think conservation is something that we're obligated to do, given our
1: weather situation and our our shortage of water. The SCPP passed Congress in December and sets aside $125 million in federal funds. That money would pay farmers like Vlaming to use less water and leave some of their fields unplanted this growing season. Here's how the program works. Farmers and other water users throughout Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah can apply for federal payments, and in exchange, they promise to use less water from the Colorado River Basin. And the water they would have used to grow their crops stays in the river.
2: We've been in a 20-plus year drought here, and we're trying to make the most of what little
1: water we have. I'm not planning on applying. I feel like it's too close to demand management. That's Jeremy Redshaw, a farmer who lives just down the road from Vlaming in Dove Creek. These kinds of conservation programs that pay farmers not to farm are polarizing. Redshaw says he's concerned if farmers start reducing their water use, it could have a ripple effects throughout the local economy. I want to keep farming. I want my kids to keep farming. Elizabeth Cobley studies water policy at the University of Nevada, Reno, and says farmers might be wary of a program like the SCPP because they see it as a slippery slope, a small program that could someday result in the widespread drying of agricultural land.
3: It could be to, um, or I should say longer term drag of land, which then has impacts like negative ecological outcomes. So I think those things are um, kind of on the top of people's heads with this.
1: She also says the amount of money the program is offering, $150 per acre foot of water, could be too low to entice them to participate.
3: If people know that we really need this water, then maybe they'd want to be paid a higher price for it. Maybe they're concerned about, you know, whether this compensation actually accounts for potential negative impacts to their field.
1: She says it's also difficult to prove the conserved water is actually ending up in Lake Powell, where it's desperately needed. In other words, there's no guarantee that farmers' sacrifices and the federal funds to incentivize them will actually help boost the reservoir's levels. Chuck Cullum says that's a valid concern.
0: So there is some risk that uh, not all the water will make it to Lake Powell. That's That's a fair characterization.
1: Colum is the executive director of the Upper Colorado River Commission, the agency tasked with guiding this expanded conservation effort. He says the SCPP is ultimately focused on making the upper basin more resilient to drying conditions.
0: And so we will continually be evaluating the effectiveness of the actions based on the entire the entirety of the what's happening both in the lower basin and upper basin.
1: For farmer Greg Vlaming, a conservation program like the SCPP, even with its many caveats, is important to Upper Basin farmers like him because…
2: Water is a finite resource and it's our limiting factor here for our
1: agricultural economy. And so I'm, I'm concerned about that. And he says, for him, saving water on his farm is about doing what's right. I'm Chris Clements in Cortez, Colorado.
0: That story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KSJD and distributed by KUNC, supported by the Walton Family Foundation. How do you want to be remembered? That question is one of many that arise in Prue Payne, a new world premiere production at the Arizona Theatre Company, written by Steve Druckman and directed by Sean Daniels. Starring in this story about identity and love, in the shadow of memory loss, ATC presents two stars of stage and screen, who are both familiar faces. Mimi Kennedy has had recurring roles on shows like Mom and Dharma and Greg. She plays Prue, a woman of scholarship and achievement who's stricken with progressive memory loss. Gordon Clapp is well-known for playing detective Greg Metavoy on all 12 seasons of NYPD Blue. He plays Gus, a man struggling with his own failing memory. I was happy to have them
4: join me in the
0: AZPM studio to tell us more about this play.
4: I would say it's a play about facing diminishment. She says, I'm Prudence Payne. Though, I, as long as I can remember, I've been Prue. When was I thus dismembered? Dismembered, yes. Dismembered. Yes. And she is losing her memory just as she's trying to write her memoir. Who is she? If Susan Sontag, Diana Trilling. I only have read these women. My husband is a, a literature teacher. So the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, the New York Times Sunday section. She is a culture critic. Joan Didion. Um, any of these iconic women who burst through even before, in the time we were talking about, and got themselves taken seriously at a time when women not were not or certainly had to fight for it and she never married but she does have a son she engineered a pregnancy and she's been good to her son um, she thinks but she's losing her memory and the son takes her to a memory clinic because she goes up and starts insulting people in the middle of an award speech in Manhattan and uh, she meets at the memory clinic a man who is also there with his son, has put him there for his memory, and that's Gordon.
5: Whose career uh, is uh, he's a custodial engineer at a boarding school near Boston. And he has a son who's a, uh, a dog breeder. Gus is a widower. He's whip smart in a different way. He's very clever um, and witty and uh, a good guy, and he takes people as they are.
0: But he's been experiencing the same kind of memory loss that Prue has?
5: Yes, and it turns out not to be quite as severe, but uh, they're there for the same purpose to try um, to—it's for beginning stage uh, memory loss.
4: We've talked a lot about this around the table. This is a clinic that's starting trying to give you memory tools, mnemonic devices to get— through your life as you know it as long as you can. And Alzheimer's hadn't been diagnosed for that long. This is really one of the first clinics devoted to it, gathering the data. 1988 data wasn't even said as much as it is now. Audiences who are seeing this play in 2023 will have much more experience with their own memory challenges, with loved ones' memory challenges. And and now they know, like Lewy body disorder is eventually, what he is diagnosed with and they knew about it in 88 they could diagnose it and call it this but how it degenerated and how long it took versus what's happening to me which seems to be more of almost a i, I would say Jakob creutzfeldt but i don't think they knew about that then um just holes in the brain it's an exploration of how that impacts the personality and what of us is human and why for how long and it's a gift she Receives a gift in her loss of critical judgment. I mean, that the critic inside us we know often impedes us from love, from career success, all manner of things. And she loses that inner critic for which she is famous. And as she tells him, since meeting you, I can't see what's lost. And from the outside, you might think, my God, this great woman, we're losing her. I want you to go on being Diana Trilling or Jermaine Greer or, you know, Mimi Kennedy. But, you know, you're going, I don't want to be anymore. I don't even see the point. I'm in love and I don't care what I was before. I mean, my God, that's a biggie. There's a story also with the two young men who played on the same baseball team at this boarding school. They had his son because he was a big athlete. He didn't go to the school, apparently. He just played on the team. And my son went to the school. But they were friends. And they reconnect. And that's an interesting story, too.
5: I, I think for both of us, it's it's amor Omnia uh, it. It's It mm-hmm. cures both of us in a way. Um, it's an extraordinary friendship for a very short time. And then it takes us... Through the rest of our lives,
0: but each of you have people in your lives who are saying, "Why aren't you like you used to be? You this never would have happened before." Mm-hmm. Whereas the two of you are sort of oblivious to that. You're you're sort of protected. You're in your own bubble.
4: One thing I love about this play and this playwright Stephen Druckmann, is he doesn't use any kind of hostility as a causa belli, so to speak, or as a as a plot point. He just goes as deep as he can into people who are trying to love and preserve. And as deep as he goes, many dramatic things happen. So I don't want to give away how that works out, but that's what I love about this play. When I read the script for the first time, I was a puddle. I was just a mess. Then I knew I would do this play. It's just the emotional journey of this. And it was so positive in this interesting way. Yeah, so I'm I'm really looking forward to doing it for an audience. We're already in it, Gordon and I.
5: We are, yes. Yeah. I talk like...
4: marbles now. I half the time I just talk about what have a car. Are we getting the car today, Gordon?
5: Yeah, <laughs> yeah Gus is a, is a gift for me because I've played a character very much like this who was. Again, a custodial engineer from Lowell, Mass, which was pretty close to this where is we three are. Three times
0: now. on record, we have you playing custodial engineers today. Don't you say janitor. That's
4: Don't right. say janitor. Don't say bus no. driver. Either. Don't play bus
5: driver. No. <laughs> you know, having grown up in New England, and uh, you know, it just it comes comes to me very easily. It's uh, you know, I just put it on and take off with it.
0: In this paperwork I got from ATC, it says, the play asks, what's the best way for any of us to be remembered? And I thought that that was very profound. And you don't have to answer that, but maybe tell us how working on this play has changed your perception of that. A year ago tomorrow, I
5: I lost my baby brother to uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, He never really left town. He was uh, on an airplane twice in his life. To yeah. New Orleans and back, and he was at Woodstock, but most of his life he spent near where we grew up. And the way he was remembered, I think, is the way I would like to be remembered. He was kind of a very quiet local hero, a very talented musician who kept his his uh, light under a bushel and never played for anyone except his his wife and a couple of friends. But he was a character. He was just a. He had a wonderful very dry sense of humor
0: what was know. his name gordon
5: his name was ian 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 we were but we both had scott's names mm. i don't know why mm-hmm. i never met another ian or gordon growing up until i moved to canada and then there were a diamond dozen yeah.
0: gordo's everywhere yes yeah you can't swing a moose without hitting a <laughs> that's right <laughs> and can i ask uh, you of that question mm-hmm. um uh, what's what's something that you now have changed or the way you perceive the idea of being remembered
4: Interestingly, I think I'm taking that into this play rather than taking out of it. I'm a grandmother. Now I have grandchildren. Um, My husband and I have been together for 43 years. And I've learned the importance to keep going in life. Uh, of what I think the physical trainers call pro-perception, how you feel from the inside, how you feel yourself from the inside. And you have to take body cues, especially from the inside. All my life I've been under the, the gaze of others in show business. Can I feel this part? Do you see me as? What do you see me as? And now I ask myself inside, who do I feel I am? I'm bringing into this part what I've learned about being in an aging body and changing in my own gaze and forgetting about the other's gaze. And it's so wonderful to share that experience with other people in this role. I never imagined that in terms of remembering the important thing for a woman is if you can remember yourself after serving so many other people, we've been mothers and grandmothers and wives and nurturers, and who were we? And our body knows. So that's what I find.
0: Mimi Kennedy and Gordon Clapp star in Arizona Theatre Company's world premiere of Prue Pain, which runs March 4th through the 25th at the Temple of Music and Art. The show then moves to ATC's Phoenix Stage for more shows in April. Complete information, including streaming options, are at atc.org. In Mesopotamia. Egypt and even medieval Europe, women were more often the ones who made beer using grain that was left over from bread making. Brewing beer was considered to be women's work. Over time, domestic roles have shifted, and beer has become a largely male-dominated business. Two women brewers in Tucson are challenging what has become the industry norm, and next we'll visit Borderlands Brewing Company in downtown Tucson in a story produced by Uzlem Uzger.
3: A brewer's day starts uh, typically pretty early in the morning. I will wake up at maybe 5:30 or 6, get here by 6:30 or 7, and every day is different. Uh, especially on a brew day, we'll get in bright and early, and I will stare at the 2,000 pounds of grain that I have to mill in, uh, which is always fun. It's good to have a little workout early in the morning so maybe at 6 30 in the morning I'll start for an hour by milling in uh, 55 pound bags of grain. We are multitaskers so we might be brewing while washing kegs while building an order to go out for distribution all throughout the state. My job is really to put out fires. My name is Ayla Kapai. I'm the head brewer and director of production for Borderlands Brewing Company. We are currently in the Borderlands Brewing production space where all of the beer is brewed. The way I learned to brew professionally was through an apprenticeship with a brewery in Tucson, public brew house. I was the first woman to brew for Borderlands Brewing. When we moved into our new production facility here, we actually opened Arizona's first all women's production facility in 2019.
6: My name's Savannah Saldate. I don't have any degree in any brewing sciences, but everything we do is learned here and trained on site. I've always thought that I would never like beer. The first time I ever tried a beer, I was like, this is disgusting. How can anybody drink this? But obviously, it's an acquired taste, just like anything. But for the most part, I almost exclusively drink beer. I started bartending craft beer. From bartending, I moved more into back-of-house things. Everything from cleaning kegs, putting orders together, cleaning the tanks, all the way to, at this point, to brewing the beer.
3: First, your beer is brewed on one day.
6: Making beer is kind of like brewing tea or making oatmeal, you take raw ingredients, you steep them basically, you add hot water to them, you extract all those sugars, those proteins, you strain that from the raw materials that you use, so you just have a liquid base. You boil that liquid, so some of the water will evaporate. Depending on what you want the alcohol content of your beer, the boil matters, but also the boil matters for adding bittering hops. After the boil, we cool the beer down to an optimal temperature for the yeast that we're using. At that point, the yeast does a lot of the work, turns the sugar water into the alcohol. Final step is separating the yeast out from the clean beer. It's called bright beer, clean beer. And then we keg it, can it, package it, and uh, distribute it, sell it to stores, sell it through our tap rooms.
3: (laughs) I'm laughing because It can go wrong at any step, any, any point in the process. So honestly, sometimes we call ourselves uh, glorified janitors. 80% of our job is cleaning and sanitizing because until the alcohol is created in the beer, the beer is very fragile. You could brew the best beer in the world. But if it goes into a vessel that's not cleaned properly or a keg that's not washed properly, or even if it's dispensed on a line, on a beer line, a tap line that's not clean, it can really alter your product. So now we're gonna taste the final product of our beer. It's been fermenting for almost two weeks. It's fully carbonated. You can see it has quite a bit of carbonation there. The first pour has quite a bit of foam. We're going to give it a smell, mmm. You can really smell those cocoa nibs that we put in the beer and the toasted coconut. Beautiful aroma, nice body and mouthfeel, has a very medium to heavy mouthfeel. It's going to be perfect for the holidays. The industry is very supportive of women and minorities um, who are pursuing careers in production. When you're a woman in the beer industry, there's other subtle things that happen. There's something about not seeing people who look like you in the industry, and that can make you second guess yourself. Uh, That certainly happened to me. When Savannah, who's our lead brewer, started with me about four years ago, one thing she said to me was, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to learn brewing from another woman. That was the first time I had heard something like that before because of course, in my experience, almost a decade ago, that was never an option. Women are actually the original brewers of beer. They were home brewers, and they were secretly selling their beer to the public. They advertised it in the way of wearing these pointy hats, which folks depicted as witch hats. There started to become this culture of witch women brewers. Fast forward, maybe especially to the last 50 years, home brewing has been dominated by men. A lot of folks, have the slogan that say, the future of beer is female. A lot of us women, we are saying, no, we are taking uh, this title and this culture back.
6: I really like everything about it. I like that it's physical, but I like that it's creative. We have a lot of creative liberty in the beers that we make. It's a little bit scientific, we're making recipes, we have to do water chemistry. It's very satisfying, honestly, seeing the final product, knowing that you milled the grain in that started it. Sometimes when I sit at the tap room and people are like, oh, this beer is so amazing, and I'm like, yes. Like, it is a very gratifying feeling.
0: That story was produced by Uzlem Uzger. For Arizona Illustrated, you can see the story you just heard on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. They help young writers realize the power and potential of bringing their stories to life for the stage, video, or radio. We're now presenting these stories on the first Thursday of every month here on Spotlight. This cautionary tale was written by Audrey, a second grader at Fruchthendler Elementary, and it's called Food Queen.
4: Hear ye! Hear
0: ye! Make way for the queen of
5: food! Once upon a time, there was a queen of food.
3: Oh yes! I am the queen of food!
4: (laughs) Bring me my chicken! Chicken! Where is my chicken? Bring it to me now! Here you
1: are, your majesty.
3: The chicken is so good,
0: oh the chicken is mine, tis mine.
6: Here it is, here the queen speaks. The queen's coming, the queen's coming. She has something to say, she has something to say.
3: Kingdom, kingdom, I eat chicken.
6: I demand that you eat only bugs. (gasps) We gotta eat bugs. What? No, she didn't say that. Bugs? My frog? She wants us to eat bugs? My frog to her? Ew! Ah ah ah! Kingdom! Kingdom! Bugs! You must eat
0: bugs! I eat chicken.
5: The queen demands for the kingdom to eat only bugs. Everyone in the kingdom was not happy. Bugs here, come get your bugs here. We got all kinds, bugs? three-legged, uh, four-legged, five-legged.
6: No, no thank you, no thank oh, you. I don't wanna eat bugs, this isn't fair. Why don't we have to eat <coughs> bugs? Oh, Disgusting,
0: they're alive. Oh, so they're so
4: bad, oh, oh, bugs, I can feel it moving.
5: So that was their life.
6: I can't do this anymore, guys, guys, we can't. We can't eat bugs. Come on, guys, let's get her! Let's get her! Chicken
4: oh, oh, we... oh, what's that? Hey, hey! Honey, 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 give me
5: my chicken! What? What are you doing? And that was the end of The Food Queen. We did it! Grab the plates. Oh, yes. Oh, delicious. That's great yeah, pasta. the yeah. chicken. i off. I'll have a nice win. And the turkey. Give the turkey. Give <laughs> me the The end. Red. Red.
0: Oh. Wow. That was Food Queen, written by Audrey, a second grader at Fruit Handler Elementary. Go Firebirds. It was produced by the Stories That Soar creative team with middle school students from the Literacy Connects Youth Center. Aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories right now to the Magic Box story portal at literacyconnects.org. And listen for more stories that soar every month on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico, The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
4: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.